This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I think people are settling in enough that we should get started because um, uh, we have a lot to discuss with you in this one hour. So uh, my name is Rosman Naylor. I'm the director of the program in food security and environment here at Stanford, senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute, as well as the Woods Institute for the Environment. And it's my pleasure today to be um, hosting a panel on food security in the environment. And just to give you a little bit of a background as to where we're heading, I wanted you to take a look at the top left corner and think first about the, uh, the dilemma and the challenge that we have as a global community of still facing a global population of over a billion people living in chronic hunger and we've had such a difficult time as an international community trying to overcome this challenge. And although global hunger has been reduced on a relative basis, the numbers still persist. And when we think about the numbers living under a dollar a day, this is uh, the number, but those living under $2 a day are enormous. And so how many people will fall into this category given shifts in the environment, agricultural conditions, climate conditions, energy conditions, and so forth, is the huge risk that we're going to talk to you about today. Um, the majority of poor people in the world live in agricultural areas, in rural areas where they depend on agriculture, fisheries, and other resources for their livelihoods. And the challenge of agricultural development, trying to lift these people out of poverty, has been somewhat eclipsed by the other really interesting issues we've been talking about this morning, international security, nuclear proliferation, and so forth. And the global community has really forgotten, to a large extent, about this problem. And um, it's only recently that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has, I think, focused its attention again on the pressing problems of people who are just trying to survive in this world. Um, to understand this issue and the challenges that we face, what we want to talk to you today is about the system as a whole. And so when you look at the top uh, right picture, you know, the, the Corn Belt in the United States, um, you know, this has traditionally been used for feed, for livestock, for animal production, but increasingly now for fuel production. And over a quarter of the corn crop is already going to fuels. That's going to increase rapidly in the future. And this is just an absolutely new error. So one of the questions that we want to ask is, what does it mean as agriculture increasingly shifts towards fuel instead of food? And who benefits and who loses? The bottom left here is a rainforest. And you know, we think about that in terms of biodiversity, but really the issues here are how much of this rainforest is also getting converted not only to soybeans as a feed crop, but increasingly to oil palm as a fuel crop. And so as we look at deforestation, I think one of the issues we're looking at uh, now is deforestation for fuel through biofuels. I just came back from Indonesia um, about 24 hours ago, so if I look jet-lagged, I am, but I'm ex still excited to be here. And Indonesia is you know, planning on opening up 6 million hectares of its rainforest for oil palm to meet this biofuels demand. And so um, these are issues which we face, I think, increasingly in the future. The latter, last picture is a picture of China, and we're going to focus on China. 
In our food security and environment program here at Stanford, we're trying to focus on the largest players in the world market. China, the US, Brazil, Indonesia, four of the most populous countries. But India is also going to be affected by this trend um, as we discuss today. So what we're going to discuss today are is the transition of agriculture and food production into fuel production and what it means for food security, the environment, and who the major players are. We're going to focus um, both on the world situation, and Ken Kassman is going to talk about world developments in biofuels and what the significance of this trend is, and talk about both U.S. and Brazil in this process. And then China's role. And I think a lot of people always ask, will China starve the world? And what does it mean for China to be going down this road right now? So let me give very brief introductions of our two speakers and let them take the floor. Ken Kassman is going to speak first. Ken Kassman is the Heerman Professor of Agronomy at the University of Nebraska. He also directs the new Nebraska Center for Energy Sciences and Research. Um, which is really the probably premier biofuels research center in the United States right now. Um, Ken has worked in all the major food crop areas in the world, the major agroecosystems in the world on issues of resource efficiency, technology, yield growth, um, and now biofuels. He just came from being awarded the 2006 Agronomic Research Award from the American Society of Agronomy, and he has numerous awards, but Ken really has forgotten more about the global food system and the global agricultural system than collectively we will all know. So <laughs> Ken, thank you for sharing your insights. And I'll introduce Scott Roselle at this time too, and then they can just take the floor. Uh, Scott is a new professor here at Stanford University. He is the Helen Farnsworth uh, Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute. He came to us from UC Davis. He's an economist who is known worldwide as the best um, rural economist in China and really knows more about China than I think anybody you can find in terms of the rural economy and developments. He is the co-founder of the Center for Chinese Agricultural Policy. You know, in any given year is writing 10 to 15 memos to the premier of China on important issues of poverty inequality, hunger, emergence of markets, and agricultural policy. And so uh, Scott also has numerous awards that we can talk about. But my the, the biggest distinction, I think, that he has is that he has conducted over 25,000 interviews with different inhabitants of uh, the rural sector in China. You can ask him any topic, and he will say, I did a survey on that once and talked to people about that issue, and here's what I know. Both of these people know what they are going to tell you today from being in the field, being on the ground, and learning it from the people who are actually involved in it. So thank you both for being here, and I'll turn the floor over to you. Well, thank you, Roz, um, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think our purpose today is to provide two um, uh, uh, pictures, one of biofuels and the transition towards a, an energy-associated uh, agriculture in, in the U.S., what that means, and then China, and Scott will focus on China. But, but our purpose also is to leave enough time for some questions and some dialogue, which is really, I think, the exciting part of having people from so many disciplines together to look at these issues. 
And so let's see if I can if I can do this now. Um, so here we are. So my talk today is going to be about this amazing convergence of agriculture and energy that's happened before our eyes in the last 12 months, essentially, and, uh, and was not predicted, neither by any of the very complicated food supply demand models that FAO has, that uh, the World Bank has, that the USDA has, that the EU has, was not predicted. And there's been this incredible transformation of agriculture that we'll talk about. And given the fact that food is so fundamental to human security, um, I think th this element of risk is important to understand that predictions are so, it's so difficult to predict a nonlinear future. And uh, the, our predictions run the risk of what, what actually happens is outside the boundaries we set in our simulations. But here we are today, or recently, in terms of our energy supply. And here is what is predicted to occur. And actually, this prediction is an underestimate now because the rate of economic development has been so much more rapid in places like India and even China that the amount of energy required or, or thought to be required in 2020 is uh, at least a 60% increase and uh, um, probably much larger. Note also that the proportion of that energy supply that's provided by oil doesn't really change. And that under this projection, very, very small amounts, relatively small amounts of renewable energy are predicted. Now, the reason that occurs is the tight relationship between income and energy use. Now, we can say that conservation is the answer. And indeed, anything we're going to say today, conservation is a big piece of it. But the problem is that where population is growing, and where the increased um, uh, human population will occur, those countries, are countries that are way down here on the energy use. And so for them to add another light bulb to each village house in rural China or rural India, to improve their access to transportation, education, medical services, which are things that are good, it will take substantial amounts of energy, even with uh, tremendous um, uh, uh, emphasis on conservation. And the other dilemma we have is that the amount of oil that's being discovered, which are the bars versus the amount of oil we're using, which is the, the black box line there, um, we've made essentially all of the major finds of oil. And I think the best example I can give is that uh, uh, you'll probably recall four weeks ago that there was a, a, a major announcement of a elephant oil field in the Gulf of Mexico, 15 billion barrels, the largest discovery in North America since Alaska, which was in the 60s. Now, to put that into perspective, oh, by the way, the three companies that uh, were, were responsible for that find, Chevron, Statoil of Norway, and Devon Energy in the US, uh, their stocks all went up 15% on the day of that announcement. And they've, they've stayed fairly uh, at that level since. Um, but 15 billion barrels of oil is only three years supply in the U.S. More than that, it was found at a depth of 28,000 feet below the surface of the ocean, which means that um, those that are in the um, production business for oil say that oil prices have to be at least $50 in today's 
um, um, uh, value for it to even be considered to be developed. So for those that think that energy prices are going to go up and down and maybe back down to what we saw, um, it seems that those that know about the oil industry are betting that prices are, are, are going to stay at this level and go higher. So we need to think about a world in which energy is at this new benchmark. Well, then, in the given that the past 12 months, oil has jumped to these highs uh, not seen before and stayed there. It provoked Congress to pa pass an Energy Policy Act, which mandated, this is U.S. focused now, so we've changed U.S. Um, uh, 7.5 billion um, uh, gallons of biofuel production by 2012. Um, but U.S. production is racing ahead because once oil crossed 45 to $50 a barrel, ethanol production from corn grain is profitable without the federal tax credit. It's profitable on its own. And what you've seen is a tremendous amount of investment dollars coming from venture capital to promote this development. So ethanol capacity is racing ahead of the mandate. And other countries have seen this too. So Brazil is looking to expand sugarcane for ethanol, Indonesia for uh, uh, its palm oil to be used instead of a vegetable cooking oil. Remember, palm oil is the lowest cost vegetable oil for those nations that rely on imports of vegetable oil, which many nations do. And Europe is thinking about canola for uh, uh, biodiesel. Um, the other thing is that corn prices has responded and, and risen dramatically. Um, they're now about nearly double what they were a couple years ago. So what are the benefits of biofuel? Why is anybody interested? Well, you reduce your dependence on imported oil. But it's not a silver bullet. It can't replace imported oil, but it can be part of a, a larger strategy. It also contributes to environmental benefits. There's a tight linkage here because when you're using grain from a corn plant. That grain was made by the energy of the sun through the process of photosynthesis, producing the carbohydrate in the grain, taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, putting it in the grain. The grain is then used in the ethanol plant to produce ethanol, and it's eventually burned in a, in a car engine, and that, that carbon dioxide is simply recycled within the biosphere. So it doesn't have a net increase in greenhouse gases as opposed to the use of fossil fuels. You bring up the oil, you burn it, it's a net increase in greenhouse gases. It also provides this incredible amount of economic development. We've been worried about rural America, uh, rural uh, portions of countries throughout the world. And here you have a new industry where it creates high paying jobs, uses new technologies, um, and it has to distribute itself because you can't have ethanol plants competing for a limited corn feedstock supply. So they have to distribute themselves regularly throughout the rural landscape. And uh, it increases then the value of agriculture. So I think that the uh, concern about subsidies for agriculture are going to diminish if not be eliminated because the value of agriculture now is determined by the price of energy and not by the price of the commodity as a food or a livestock feed. And uh, we're going to see large decreases in federal subsidies simply because the price is well above what's required to provide subsidies. So you've had this convergence. And if you look at the projections, now again, these, the, this is the Department of Energy, um, uh, U.S. Department of Energy, and they have a, a group called the Energy Information Agency, and they have projections. And their current projection uh, for the next uh, five years or so is 
oil to range between $53 and $63. Now, having said that, uh, two years ago, their projection for that same time period was $30 to $45 a barrel. Um, but given that, ethanol would then be expected to range in, in about a $1.50 to $2 scenario. Now, look, just, just look at the value there. Um, it, with one bushel of corn, you can make nearly three gallons of ethanol. And uh, the gross value then is 4.2 to 5.6 dollars per bushel just for the ethanol. You get distillers grains as a co-product. They're a fantastic livestock feed. You can feed them to livestock. You get about another 70 cents a bushel. You're looking at the value of a bushel of corn of five to six dollars. And the cost of producing ethanol is crashing as engineers are brought to, uh, engineering is brought to bear to improve the design of ethanol plants, make them more efficient, more energy efficient. So what we see is that we're, we're looking at floor prices in corn grain that are going to be three to four and a half dollars a bushel or more because this is the, the break-even cost. This is the break-even cost range for producing ethanol. And uh, at these prices, we're going to be building ethanol plants until corn reaches those prices because it's so profitable. And so you see this tremendous burst of uh, development. These are ethanol plants either in place or being built. Um, and we're going to be easily at 10 billion gallons by 2010. Remember, the mandate in last year's Energy Policy Act was only 7.5 billion by 2012. We're going to be at 10 billion gallons by 2010, and we're going to be moving on towards uh, 12 to 15 billion gallons of supply. And as we do that, we're going to be looking for all kinds of creative ways to improve this process. So the current ethanol plants pretty much are a linear system of taking corn, grinding it, fermenting it, just like making beer or whiskey. Um, you you, you, you um, then use the distiller's grains as livestock feed. But what's happening is you're getting so much interest in the creative side of higher value products along this value chain. And I think you're going to see for instance, even in the oil business, um, in, 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 over the, the, the recent past 10, 20 years, um, refineries, oil refineries, were happy if they simply broke even on the, getting uh, a return on the cost of gasoline. They made their money on the, the valuable chemicals and, and value-added products that you take out of a barrel of oil, not just the gasoline. And I think that's what we're going to see as we develop these biorefineries that are going to populate the Midwest. So we've on, only just begun. The system already is profitable and it's environmentally beneficial. But we've only just begun to tap the potential of making it even more profitable and more beneficial to the environment. And so ultimately, I think, and this has happened within the last 12 to 18 months, it was not predicted. And as the U.S., for instance, produces 40% of all corn produced in the world. In terms of traded corn, it produces, it, it accounts for 65% of all traded corn. And very soon we're going to be using 40 to 50% of all of our corn for biofuel. And so I think the, the question, there are really two questions here. What does this mean then? It's, a, it's critical that we regroup quickly because this was, in turn, what, what are the policies we need? What does it mean for investment in research, both nationally and globally in the international agricultural system? Because no one was thinking about this just 18 months ago. What does it mean for risk and, and security in other dimensions? 
So I think uh, that I, I want to just go 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 then uh, and last to lead into this idea of the linkage with the environment. Because if there's such tremendous incentive to produce crops for biofuels because it's profitable, we run the risk then of having agriculture expand into areas that are marginal with regard to soils and cannot support sustainably agricultural production. And um, you, you'll see, I think, unless there's a, 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 a careful vision of how, where we go and how we get there, that agriculture will expand. And, and of course, all of us know about the, 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 the environmental degradation that's associated with agriculture practiced in areas that are not suited for intensive agriculture. Um, of particular concern of the rainforests and Brazil, Equatorial Africa, Indonesia. Because these areas do have rain, good rainfall distribution. The problem is they have poor soils. There's a reason why agriculture centers in temperate areas because of the soil quality. These soils can sustain crops for a year or two but have real trouble sustaining the long term without incredible amounts of inputs. Two to three times the input levels that are required in a U.S. corn soybean system in terms of nutrients, fertilizers, and pesticides. And so when um, Secretary Schultz this morning said that his policy prerogative would be priority would be to relax importation of ethanol from Brazil for sugarcane. The implication then you've got to follow through on is that means that lots of rainforest is going to go because the expansion of sugarcane production and soybean production is now at the fringe of the Amazon rainforest. And the deforestation rates there are incredible. For instance, just look at what happened when price incentives were about the late 1900s. Uh, yeah, that's right, late 1900, 1999 to be exact, 2000. The Brazilian Cruzeiro, uh, value of the Brazilian Cruzeiro against the dollar fell. It made it so even low-cost soybean became highly profitable. And within a matter of a few years, you had a, an additional 10 million hectares of soybean. And much of that is occurring at the expense of rainforest in Brazil. And this is what it looks to clear rainforest. We were there last March. Uh, that the, on the left is the Nebraska soybean farmer from the Nebraska Soybean Board. They're very interested in what's happening there. That's the chain that they tie between two D8 Caterpillar tractors and just drive through the rainforest, pulling it down. Fragile soil. You see root systems here that only go six inches deep. The only fertility in those soils is the top six inches. And our farmer said, boy, if this was a cottonwood in the Midwest, you couldn't get it over with that chain in those tractors. Mm -hmm. Because in good soils, roots go way down. In these soils, big trees, but their roots are all in the surface. You can, you can just push them down. So the path forward in terms of policy and research is to, to see clearly what we want to maximize with regard to the benefits and what we want to avoid with regard to the risks and concerns. And, uh, and, and all of this un overlaying a strong emphasis on conservation. But that alone doesn't get us there. So I want to end there and, um, and, then, and then turn it over. I think, do we turn it over to Scott first? Yeah, Ron? we'll have Scott and then we'll open it up for questions. Good. Once my assistant gets my PowerPoint up. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm going to go through um, <clears throat> a number of slides pretty fast, just so we leave time for discussion. But I, I thought I had to step back and look at this problem of, you know, uh, globalization, biofuels, world hunger, will, you know, what's going to happen, by, by couching it in the context of, of another whole debate. And that's, you know, that, that sort of dominated Chinese thinking and international thinking on, you know, uh, sort of China's emergence into the global food system. And it was over the debate, will China starve the world? And um, I'm going to put it in that context because when we got through this debate, it was obvious, you know, no. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you the final answer halfway through the presentation. There's no problem. Is it that when you take all the factors that we knew about into account, that this was going to be a stable system and, and life was going to go on, despite the emergence of China and the huge demand for, for food that was going to rise. Well, I put that in context of biofuels, suddenly it becomes clear how important this is. And, and this is something I've been learning, again, over the past six months. I mean, this is, this is a big deal when we end up tying energy and food prices together. I mean, this is a, an entire new paradigm. So uh, forgive me if I go too fast. We can, I can give people present, uh, the, the, um, uh, the slides after that. Uh, the background, of course, is that China's economy grew at, has been growing at 10 percent. Oop, no. What did I do? Do you know how to get it on yellow? Oops. Yeah. Uh, That's okay. That's okay. Okay. 10% okay. um, a year uh, from 1979 to 2004. That means that the economy now is 10 times the size as it was in 1978. To put that in perspective, it took the United States 100 years. It actually took it 115 years to to grow 10 times from 1860 to about 1970. Um, and during this time, China, of course, opened up uh, its economy. 60% of the economy now is in imports and exports, so it's tied to this world market. And of course, all we, you know, we're thinking about where China goes in the future. Even with declining growth rates, it's going to be six times as large now uh, as it is now in 2030, you know, so every place you see this brand new building that was built last year, there's going to be six more of them in its place um, uh, 20 years from now. And, and I, I really like this graph of, of trying to help understand sort of in history where this puts us. Uh, here is the world economy and who's contributing uh, uh, to total wealth in this economy through history. Here's 1820. And in 1820, that's not very long ago, right, uh, China was contributing 33% to world GDP. Uh, the United States was 1%. That's the, the red one there, right? So it's not in Europe and we see. In, and look, by 1970, China has this collapse. Um, uh, and they're only contributing 4% of world GDP. But look where it's happened since. It's by 2025, it's going to be the largest economy in the world, uh, and it's going to be almost back to where it was before. And so this is uh, the reemergence re of China is, I make this point because this is, so this isn't a fantasy, right? I mean, this is sort of a, a, a swing back of history, and it's part of the reason and consequences of China's emergence into the world. 
So, so what happens in this? Here's the debate. Will China starve the world? There's rapid rise in demand that comes from income, and there's a shift in focus from the agriculture sector to the, to the non-agriculture sector, and so uh, there just isn't going to be so much production done. So there's a supply and a demand problem, <laughs> plus China's exporting everything, <laughs> right? It has a trillion dollars in the bank, and so supply falls to meet the rising demand for massive, uh, for food, they import. This creates a large global price rise. It can afford to pay, um, but it, then it deprives food from poor countries uh, to access to food. This, was, this, is, this is what I worked in the 1990s on, this question, and it was a hot debate, right? So uh, the Ministry of Agriculture, Lester Brown, yes, I think this is the Ministry of Agriculture here, not <laughs> Lester. Uh, um, uh, they cite a fall in cultivated area, the fall in productivity, these, these rises of international prices from China's sort of endless hunger for food, right? And, you know, our side is, you know, you know take any of their arguments to, of the yes side, and we say, no way. There's nothing to support it. I think this is Huang here. It's not Roselle uh, uh, um, in, in this debate. And so let's look at it. You know, is it loss of cultivating land? And this is what people are seeing, right? These two photos are taken from the exact same place in Shenzhen. Shenzhen is a rice paddy in 1980, and now it's one of China's largest cities. Look at the falling production, right, as it gets turned into here. But if you do the research and look at the facts, right? So here are Landsat photos in 1985. Here's Landsat photos in 2000. You do the accounting. Yeah, Shenzhen has gone out of production, but China actually has a net gain of 3 million hectares during this time. So if you look at the facts, you know, the, the Lester Brown scenario that, 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 that land area is going to disappear from agriculture just doesn't hold water. So. China's not going to starve the world from falling land area. How about falling productivity? Well, if you just look at what's happening in productivity in the past 30 years, productivity, that means land, I mean, yield per unit of area. Um, what we see is, is, is very rapid rise in the early 80s, and it's continued at 2% a year. It's continued to 2005, and, and that's considered a very healthy rate, way above the population uh, 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 growth rate. Um, and China is set to continue this productivity. China now spends a billion dollars a year in purchasing power parity terms in plant biotech research. That's twice as much as the U.S. government. So, that, so China is outspending the U.S. government two yen to one um, uh, on plant biotechnology research. It's transforming. These are the China's own varieties where before they almost had were eliminated out of the cotton market. Now they're, they're major producers of uh, genetically modified cotton. Five million farmers on three million hectares are using these new technologies, and it's created this very rapid rise of productivity, about 30% in the cotton industry, and it's happening in other, other crops. The whole point is, is Lester Brown and, and, and many of the, the, the China will starve the world people said productivity is going to fall in this new environment. You can see that it didn't. And finally, there's spiraling demand. 
Say, what happens if every Chinese eats one more kilogram of pork every year, right? And you get these very rapid rise in meat demand, and, and these get projected out, and, and, and China's going to bid up the price of food to feed these with the Nebraska corn that nobody thought was going to be put into biofuels. But, but that story is coming later. But look what happens on the other side. The cereal grains, are, uh, wheat and rice, the absolute consumption of those are going down. So this is, if you do the entire accounting, yes, food demand rises. But when you get the whole accounting down, is it's in the range where even at lower levels, this is, this is cultivated area of rice and wheat are actually falling, even with those falling levels of production of these crops, this is self-sufficient line as 100%. China is basically self-sufficient in all these grains, right? And this is at a time when there's supposed to be you know, a, a, a third of the world's traded grain is supposed to be coming into China, right? Is, is there self-sufficient? So let's look forward. And if we look forward, we find the same, pro we find the same answer is, yes, China is going to be a big importer of certain goods and services, but they're also going to be an exporter. They're going to stay about at self-sufficiency under the baseline, okay? And I want to stress that under the baseline because the baseline isn't gonna, doesn't have biofuels in here. And, and if we look out, will China starve the world? This is going to be increased flows of agricultural products into China. And what you see is other Asian nations these are poor. Uh, 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 these are poor Asian countries. Uh, South America, uh, 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 Russia is is yes. There is some flow in there, but it's very small. Okay, I mean China will supply actually markets for some poor areas in the world, but um, uh, it's it's not a scenario where China is going to uh, drastically bid up the price of, of food to the start to the uh, detriment of poor people. So. There's no debate, <laughs> okay? We won. I mean, and I think that over the last 10 years, we did win. And, you know, China's still a net exporter of food into the world. But it comes to a different story with other commodities. When you work through the supply and demand figures of energy, right, China is now the second largest consumer of energy in the world and growing very fast, as, as we all, uh, all know. And if you look at future expected imports of energy <laughs> into China, they rise. Imports go this way, exports go this way. China is actually a net exporter of coal now. But over time, the blue bar is 2020. China is going to become a net importer of energy. Look at, look at the oil. China is going to rival the U.S. as an importer of oil almost to the same degree. And, and this is going to serve to continue to keep the price of oil high. And, and so this is the basis of those projections of energy prices uh, in, into the world. It could be even higher <laughs> if China grow, continues to grow at a faster pace than it has, um, uh, that, that China's going to surpass the U.S. in, in oil imports. Okay? And you can just imagine what that does. So. Right is before oil, before biofuels, 
there's there's no story. I mean, there's 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 uh, 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 wrenching changes in supply and demand in China, but they stay right there at about self-sufficient, um, and uh, uh, there's a dynamics. But then biofuels come on the screen. Um, uh, basically, what has to happen is is China sees these projections numbers, and they turn around and do the same thing the U.S. does. Okay. And they pass a bioethanol law, and, and they start to give tax exemptions to bioethanol production, and it takes off. Um, as I'm talking about this, <laughs> I, I, and after I saw Ken's per, uh, um, a presentation, uh, we're, we're, we still are really talking about David and Goliath. So he, this is David <laughs> right here, and, and Goliath is where we're sitting now here in the U.S., but uh, uh, Basically, by 2006, there's three plants, very large plants uh, compared to the U.S. size that are produced uh, with maize, and there's a huge uh, wheat plant being uh, a bioethanol plant to use wheat in central China. Uh, there's plans to go into cassava, sugarcane forests, and manure plants to do this. So, but I want to say, so does this matter? What does it matter? Okay. Um, this is very preliminary work. We, as last night, I was uh, I was logged into our computer in the in Beijing, running the final simulations of this initial work. And, and um, what we're gonna we just began with maize and said, what happens if China meets its current goal by 2020 to produce tw 10 million kiloliters? How much is that? The U.S. is 15 billion gallons. That means two billion gallons. So the U.S. so China's target is two billion gallons, while the U.S. is 15 billion. So it's only a fraction of that. But I want to show you what this matters. And the two main assumptions is it's going to meet that the two billion gallons. It's probably going to exceed it. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and so you have to keep that in mind. And the other thing we wanted to see what happens to the Chinese agricultural economy if it tries to meet its own needs by itself. It's a really different story if, if they open up. And, and in fact, the problem, we can't, we can't see what's going to happen to the world yet because we, we don't know what's going to happen to UNES or, or Brazil. Uh, and, uh, but think of this as uh, what's going to happen to China. But what happens if they turn to world markets? Well, it's, it's going to mean more of those Caterpillar tractors uh, lying down. And this is what happens. So here's the baseline for maize production in China in 2020 if there's no ethanol production and if there is. It, 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 and, and this is this modest goal of 2 billion gallons of ethanol that almost certainly the maize crop rises by 20%. Maize in China becomes the main crop replacing rice and the main thing to look at is what stimulates that. The price of maize in China has to almost double. It goes up by 60%. All of the, all of the rapid growth of China, all of the wrenching changes that happen in China through the next 20 years, if you project out till 2020 without biofuels, the price of grain in China is exactly the same as it is now. It's exactly the same. But you put biofuels on it and it almost doubles. Okay, I mean this is a, this is a, a huge. What does that mean? Well, it's good news for small poor farmers that are producing maize, 
But you have to think of what about urban consumers inside China's poorest? What about urban consumers in Bangladesh, in, in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa? If China saw, decides to, to go to the international markets to produce this, uh, to have it produced and imported with their $1 trillion reserves. So um, uh, these are the issues that are happening. I think that the fundamental question is right here. For a hundred years, we've lived under Ingalls' Law. <laughs> I mean, you probably remember that from your class, right? Ingalls' Law is as you get richer, you eat less food. <laughs> because we eat less food as we get richer and the world has got richer, the price of food has fallen since 1880. <laughs> so so for a hundred and forty years, hundred and thirty years in a row, the real price of food has fallen in the world. Now, suddenly, we're going to tie this to a commodity that's growing faster than any commodity has ever been. And what does that mean? I mean, we can't even begin to get our minds around uh, um, uh, how this is going to affect poverty, positive and negatively, the environment, positively and negative. I think that what I hope to have done today is to show that, that, that this is a big deal and it's worth uh, uh, thinking about. Thank you very much. Thanks both Ken and Scott, and I'll open it up for, for uh, discussion. I think the the points that prices will rise so dramatically, not just for these biofuel crops, but for the crops that go out of production, like rice and other crops, is uh, has an enormous impact on the poor who are mainly net consumers of food. So I open it up to questions, comments. Yeah. This is for Dr. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I think uh, the water supply in, in, in worldwide is going to be, you know, one of the major limiting, you know, constraints. Um, uh, I think all the water supply problem in China is going to do, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ex exacerbate this problem. It, it turns out that corn is a water-saving crop in China because it grows during the rainy season in the summer and wheat is the water using crop which isn't necessarily true everywhere in the world but uh, uh, and so what's gonna if water becomes more scarce um, we're gonna see you know a moving away from wheat into corn it's gonna help this you know it's gonna make biofuels relatively cheap but then suddenly it's just like what Ra said suddenly you get a change in other crop prices like wheat. I mean, right now, it, it's, it, and, and right now, wheat, world wheat markets are at their most critical phase they've been at in years. The wheat price of wheat is very high. The U.S. had a bumper crop. Canada had a bumper crop, and the price of wheat is as high as it's ever been. This never happens, right? We all know the cobweb model, right? Um, and and you, I read a Wall Street Journal article, okay, about the world wheat markets and what was driving this and guess what wasn't even mentioned the word China wasn't in the article because China basically we saw wheat is the consumption of wheat is going down and production is keeping up but what happens if water is a problem and you get a outshift 
of 20 million tons of, of, of wheat because there's no water and another 20 million tons because you're going to produce ethanol on that. I mean, you're going to double the demand for world, I mean, right? You can just see the consequences of that. But, but I think, the, from my view, because Nebraska has the second largest irrigated area behind California, and unlike California in the U.S., where you use most of your irrigated land for diverse crops that, that are luxury crops in many cases, we use our water for corn and soybeans, biofuel crops. But the fact is that um, the technologies on the shelf for water savings uh, under irrigated agriculture are tremendous. And what's limited their adoption has been the fact that they're just not cost effective when you have low commodity prices. So for instance, drip irrigation. We know drip irrigation is very near to being 100% efficient. Every drop of water goes right where you want it in the root zone. But it's been limited simply because everyone's, oh, you could never use drip irrigation on corn. It's just not cost effective. It's changed. Uh, we have farmers now in Nebraska thinking about installing drip irrigation on corn. Because as the price of corn goes up, you can justify investment in, in very uh, highly technical water saving. So I think that water's not the limitation so long as you're in a world where commodity prices are very high. <laughs> Randy. I'm Randy Livingston. Uh, in Europe, the, the bioengineering, there's been huge resistance to bioengineering crops for food production, and yet I think bioengineering's been demonstrated to have dramatic impacts on increasing yields. How is that dynamic, do you expect, going to play out as sort of the use of these crops for fuel becomes a more predominant factor? Uh, yeah. yeah, well, just first, I, I, I think over time there's going to be acceptance because the preponderance of evidence, all, the, many of the questions that were the uncertainties, the effect on human health, the, the effect on the environment, they're getting answered. And they're getting answered resoundly that um, with reasonable um, uh, regulatory uh, cautions along the way to developing and testing these crops, and then um, uh, with reasonable uh, insight into how to use them, um, that they're, they're, they're really quite positive. Um, but the big picture, I think, is that um, as you raise the, the, um, the need for food, as you raise the value of these commodities, and if indeed having enough of them becomes an important issue, which wasn't the case even a few years ago, we were worried about the surpluses. But then I think your, your, your willingness to, to look more, more carefully at all technological options to ensure that food prices remain reasonable while we meet these other needs, expanding demands such as biofuels, becomes maybe starts outweighing some of the very small, hard to quantify risks that people are concerned about with, with genetically modified organisms. Yeah, I, I think just it, it's, a, it's a very good question, and it, it comes right back to the, you know, as we think about, we sort of see now, uh, we can start getting projections on how much demand increase there's going to be, right, uh, by this. The real question now is going to be what is the response of area, what's the response of yields, and, and, and as, right, as commodity prices are high, there's going to be more and more pressure to make innovations, and especially if we want to try to keep down the expansion of land because of 
environmental concerns, right? And so I think there's going to be, and and this is what's really going to going to trigger that. Uh, plus, if corn, if, if these crops, including um, uh, uh, soybeans and palm oil, if they're genetically modified and are used in these processes to create ethanol, the proteins disappear. These genetically modified proteins disappear just like they do in um, uh, for soybean oil, right? It was we we eat genetically modified, we eat soybean oil from genetically modified soybeans all the time, but that protein, you know, isn't there. Yeah, one, one final thing is, um, is also that uh, um, genetic engineering is only a small piece of the technological um, um, innovations that are required. It's, it's, it's by no means the driver of meeting demand. It's so much more, um, what we're going to have to do is have these systems that are so finely tuned ecologically. Because we haven't mentioned the fact that if there's incentives to produce much higher yields, farmers typically in the past have, have um, then unleashed the, uh, their pocketbooks to buy inputs like fertilizers, um, et cetera, and not have been so worried about um, uh, whether or not the use of those fertilizers is highly efficient because it, you want to be safe, you want to put on enough. And so I think the, the challenge is that it, 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 for policy and research is to never mention the two separately. That is never say, we've got to increase yields. And then later, somewhere else say, and we've got to protect the environment. Because if you don't do your research to get on those two issues concomitantly, you, can't, you don't get the right answers. You've got to do the, and, and right now, if you want to know how much money the federal government uh, in the U.S. is giving to that issue, it's zero. And that's what I mean by changing, rapid change of priorities in research. And, and genomics and genetics is not really going to help a lot on those issues. Because those issues are things like nitrogen use efficiency, uh, yield potential, and um, uh, there's very little that, that molecular biology is going to contribute to that. Um, so, so I think, but, but in general, uh, it, it's a tool in our toolbox, and we're going to need all tools. You've, you've hit it on the head. We have a window. We've had we have a window right now to affect that farm bill, and indeed, colleagues of mine um, uh, yesterday came out with a paper that had some ideas about what should be in that farm bill. But certainly, there needs to be a redirection of research dollars to some of the issues that are now important that are that weren't on the radar screen before. Second is there shouldn't be an outright subsidy for ethanol. It should be countercyclical. It should be a safety net when prices are low and not a 51 cent a gallon, whether prices are $4 or $2. Um, uh, and, and thirdly, we need to have very good forward-looking research on what this means, and, and not just for the U.S., but internationally, and not just for China, but for poor, poor parts of the world like sub-Saharan Africa. But can price supports go away now? Well, I, I, think you, I think agriculture always needs a safety net. I think what, what, what it needs is to just make sure that uh, subsidies are not given when there's not a need for them. Agriculture, as you know, is so risky. 
It's not like any other industrial sector. Um, if any rational person w that, that's simply looking to maximize return on investment and capital would never choose to go into agriculture. <laughs> so you need a safety net if you want food. Yeah, and, and there's two parts to the agriculture subsidies. And one is a fixed payment. Though, those are going to stay there, and they're always there, unless a change of thinking happens. These are payments to farm. The other is a price support payment. And that's about half of our payment. That half has almost disappeared in the past several years. Is, is we're paying a lot. We actually, and since we do it that way versus the way the Europeans do it, <laughs> we look much better right now uh, than the Europeans. In fact, we're just as distorting uh, through these other types of, third type of subsidies, which are, you know, sort of, uh, ethanol production subsidies and, and uh, et cetera. And, and so I think, right, an entirely new way of thinking to try to make this not a fad, but actually an exactly. economically long-run sustainable uh, uh, industry is, is what really is needed. You know, if you, the other thing, the other benefit that just keeps coming home to me, in my entire career, the problem has been that agriculture simply wasn't valued wasn't valued by policymakers in the U.S., wasn't valued by policymakers and government um, uh, leaders in uh, developing countries, especially places like Sub-Saharan Africa. They simply don't make the investments that's that are required. And I think the, the ultimate um, good that comes out of this is that you've immediately had a revaluation of agriculture and of land and of rural infrastructure. And I, there's going to be discontinuities, to be sure, but I can't help but think that if leaders in countries in sub-Saharan Africa realize that they can't rely on a shipment of corn if they run short for the U.S., they have to do it themselves, and that it makes money, that it's valuable commodity. Um, uh, you, one would hope that uh, there would be a renewed commitment to investment in rural agriculture in developing countries. Marty Krasny, what are the implications, and I just followed on your last comment, for the people in Roz's upper left-hand picture living on a dollar, $21 a day yes. and their descendants? Again, I think um, if, if you look longer term, uh, I, I think it's very, very positive because the, the you, agriculture needs to, have a, to be seen as having a higher value to get leaders um, and policymakers to invest in it. And it simply hasn't for, for my, almost my entire career as an agronomist. Uh, but the problem is how you get there. And that's what needs to be immediately on the radar screen of, of um, the best and the brightest in this world, thinking about what this means, how you make this transition to a world in which agriculture now is valued as energy and not as feed or food. Are you assuming that that investment will get to those people rather than people somewhat higher up on the um, economic well, ultimately, I mean, it, it depends on your political system, obviously, but, but the value will be in producing the commodity, which is so different than what it's been. So, it, and you put, then you superimpose on that all kinds of political structures and who wins and who loses. But, but, there, but that's a tremendous tectonic shift. And Scott, what, yeah, what do you I think? think I, mean, I, I mean, I think what you need to think about is, is um, uh, whether you're a poor, whether that woman was a farmer and had access to land or whether she was living in a city 
in, in the slum. And the, the city poor, the urban poor, have been great beneficiaries of this, of, of our subsidies and overproduction and falling prices. But um, uh, in, this new, in this new world, suddenly the poor in rural areas, the, the delivery mechanism is the market. Right, and so prices are high. So if you're if you're producing, but suddenly you're a poor landless worker in the outskirts of Delhi or in in the Kenyan you know Nairobi suburbs. I mean, you are in big trouble, right? Because you, suddenly you're spending 65 percent of your money on food, and the price doubles. So now you need 130 percent of it. Right? Yeah, I, I'd like to weigh in too because this is also. Um, my field, and it was interesting from just returning from Indonesia where, you know, 10 million people live under a dollar a day and 100 million people live under $2 a day. So there's a lot of near poor there. And with a rice policy that banned the imports of rice, prices went up such that 6 million more fell into poverty within just a matter of months and had a hard time feeding themselves. Now that policy was designed for producers and we think of of the poor living in agricultural areas where they're producing crops. But most of those poor, in fact, are net consumers. And so I think the verdict is still out on, on what will happen here. Oil crops is the mystery, I think, to many of us. You know, a third of calories for a lot of poor people in India, for example, come from palm oil, from, from uh, these vegetable oils. And what happens to the price of that as it goes into fuels could really, you know, hurt net consumers. And so the short run, is, uh, you know, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because the short run is uh, really, we're seeing this happen so fast that all the planning for the net consumers, I think, is going to be a challenge. Yeah, way in the back. Yeah, Bill Rockmeyer, just a comment and a question. We just had, uh, in following up a couple of points here about influencing policymakers, they're just uh, hearing for the California board on uh, food and agriculture. Leon Panetta and I and a couple of others on looking at agriculture as a strategic national resource and the implications for California, the country, and the rest of the world. They're beginning to address some of these issues and how it ties not only with respect to the economic aspects, um, of which was only a small part of it, but the security aspects and looking at it as part of a larger system. Fantastic. Um, and, and looking at including some of the counterproductive or the counterintuitive effects that if you have increased production, because of the going into energy issues, that in fact it will decrease the amount for food and leads into a spiral that has other implications. And some of our interest was then the impact that this has on instability politically. Exactly. The question I ask for you, part of it has to do with the water stuff um, with respect to the limits and the impact because as increasing rise of the middle class in various parts of the world, including China, drive up the needs for energy and water almost yep. linearly. Um, to what extent, and I don't know, but I've heard this from experts, because I'm not an agriculture expert, to what extent is the increase in an awful lot of the biomass that would be used for fuel energy, such as corn, et cetera, the increased productivity tied to um, petroleum-based pesticides, uh, not pesticides, but uh, fertilizers and other things, and to what extent then, if you're looking at conversion rates, can either of you or all three of you help enlighten me, because I've got people I'm talking to Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the, the big picture is you get a large net surplus of energy. So if you're investing a unit of energy from fossil fuel in inputs to an ethanol system, 
you're getting a net surplus of energy out. So, and that's only going to get better because the studies that have shown that take average yields looking backwards. They'll take USDA database numbers for corn yield. They'll take the average nitrogen rate used. They'll take the average irrigation efficiency. And then they'll do a life cycle analysis. And then the average ethanol plant as it exists today and the average use of, of, of co-products. But as I mentioned, each plant that's going in is better than the next one. Um, if you look at the frontier of technology and the energy efficiency, the greenhouse gas reductions, uh, the, the numbers go up by a factor of two and three. And um, so the big question, when you, when you look at even systems today, I think uh, you use one liter of fossil fuel to produce seven liters of ethanol. So uh, there's net energy efficiency, then there's the fossil fuel replacement, fossil fuel ratio. Um, um, uh, so, so I don't think, I, I, I don't think the energy issue is a, a big concern. Bigger concern is the source of nitrogen. Because it, within the last 10 years, because natural gas only has a value if it's able to be used in a pipeline in your stove or in your air conditioning system. Natural gas has very little value if it's on a uh, flaring off of an oil platform in the middle of the Persian Gulf because there's no pipeline to move it. Now, they're, they're working to get LNG, liquefied natural gas, but that's, that takes huge capital investment. And so where nitrogen fertilizer plants are being built are in the areas where natural gas has no value because you use natural gas to convert nitrogen from the air into fer nitrogen fertilizer. And at this point in time, I think the U.S. is importing uh, 60 to 70 percent of its nitrogen fertilizer already, and the plants that are in business are going out of business because they can't afford to pay seven or eight dollars million BTU when the the cost of that natural gas in the Persian Gulf is nothing. And so there are issues there about the 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 security of food supply depend interdependent on inputs and things <laughs> that aren't produced locally and come from large distance. <laughs> Complicated. Other questions? I think there's one. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm bouncing back to what we were discussing earlier, what you uh, thought was valid. You had a graph uh, that was showing like maybe 2% increase in the benefits to most of the countries. I noticed that India was the one big <laughs> negative there. Could you go behind sort of the logic uh, that created that? that yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's. Well, it's there it is right here. Basically, this is, um, it's mainly because there's, uh, uh, the, the logic of this is um, thinking about supply and demand in China for every commodity, okay, and then the substitute between them, and then what they're going to have then have to go out on the international markets to buy, Okay, which is going to raise prices and benefit <laughs> the countries that are that are positive, right? And then uh, what they're going to be selling into the markets. And and China is a big rice exporter. They're a big um, uh, aquaculture exporter, and they're a big horticulture exporter. <laughs> which uh, uh, if if you looked at this, you see uh, NAFTA is a net is is basically doesn't gain or lose, that's because soybean farmers really gain 
<laughs> it's very positive in the U.S. because China imports half the world's soybeans. <laughs> California fruit and vegetable producers lose because China's taken away all of their markets in Korea. In India is now, and basically what happens with India, to get to your question, is that China and India compete over, over many of, of their crops. And so mainly rice, some horticulture markets to, to Southeast and South Asia. And, and our projections are basically that um, uh, because China ends up exporting a lot more of those crops, prices fall and India is a net loser. With biofuels, I'm sure India is going to have a huge net gain, right, uh, for agriculture, for those farmers that have land, for those landless urban people that don't. They're, I mean, that's they're, they're going to be in in big trouble. So, uh, but so Scott, this is just for the effect of food exports. This is not the overall net effect. In India, yes. in your model, has tremendous economic development. This is just oh, yeah. in the this, agricultural no, this sector. Is, this is the impact. In fact, this yep. is, yes, this is the yep. impact yep. of China's emergence into food markets in the world. Yep. China's emergence into textile markets in the world has a, even a greater negative impact on India because it's taking away all the textile exports that India is doing now. However, India gets it back in that there's lots of IT trade between India and China, and it ends up ends up being about net even. There's a lot of synergies between these economies widespread. So, right, so thank you. That's a very good point. I just, I, I wanted though, just remind you, these are our country totals. And when you look at income distribution and, and the number of, you know, there's more people that are chronically hunger, hungry in South Asia than anywhere else in the world. Um, and, and so there are still those with very small land holdings or no land holdings, even in rural areas. Who are going to who are going to struggle here? And so I think those are the really complicated issues that it's really hard to, in fact, even have access to easy data to analyze right now. I wanted to get just to, to say one final point to the question in the back earlier about energy, um, because it's so fundamental to the the big picture. And that is, um, does anyone in the room have any idea what percentage of total energy use in the United States goes to production of crops? All crops, all agriculture. Any guesses? Less than 2%. So my point is that concerns about things that rely on energy as inputs to agriculture are minuscule compared to what energy is being used for. And as long as commodity prices are high enough to justify those inputs, the, the, the energy self-sufficiency issue is not critical for agriculture. I disagree with that, actually. OK. Um, because that's true as long as In, I, I'm not clear on what your ratio is. What your one to one is what? You, it takes it takes almost a gallon of, of fossil fuel to produce a gallon of corn based ethanol. It's about one point two. Seven is is for sugarcane based ethanol. We we need to talk afterwards. It sounds like you're talking about net energy 
uh, efficiency. Okay, well, I, I was talking about how much actual petroleum it takes to produce the corn and how much ethanol is produced. Yeah, no, but, but uh, that's that's a, a, but you're talking, you're talking about corn-based ethanol. No, because energy comes from so many different sources. You're, the goal of ethanol is to reduce dependence on, on imported oil for gasoline. Right. And so, so, so one, one, and, one and measure. And to reduce of, the CO2 output yeah. because yeah. The, the energy for, for ethanol comes from the atmosphere and it's put, once it's burned, it gets put back in the atmosphere, but there's a net. But the other point is just to, to make clear that it, it's really 20, 30% net energy value but that's a backward-looking analysis. That's looking at average yields, average uh, fertilizer rates, average ethanol plant as it existed. The question for policy is what could it be if you start using on-the-shelf best management technologies at each point in the chain because that's what you want to promote. And when we do those analyses, it goes up to 70% to two-to-one. If, if you put an ethanol plant next to a cattle feedlot and use the manure to make methane, it goes up to three-to-one and four-to-one. So my point is we've just scratched the surface of harnessing all of the potential synergies and energy benefits that we can. David. This sounds, though, like good lunch conversation to continue. So I'm not trying to cut the conversation yeah. off. I just want to make sure. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to, before we run out of time, to get your thoughts on, um, on food security in the context of all these other risks we're talking about today. And it's easy to say, if you look at the number of people that died from food security related things com uh, compared to terrorism and other issues, it's a lot bigger number. But then if you look at the resources put into these issues versus those issues, it's a lot smaller. So I guess my question would be, um, is it fair to just look at you know number of deaths or is that not the right metric to use and, and people are looking at it correctly? Are people maybe not um, valuing this? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. In fact, I think that was the question that was asked at the end but wasn't answered at the end, you know, relative to all risks to humanity, how does nuclear proliferation versus these other things like hunger or disease fit in? Um, you know, how you evaluate risks, I think, was uh, was raised today. There's some subjectivity in it, and I think in the United States, we value risks according to what might affect us, not what might affect humanity as a whole. And I think if you were really interested in humanity as a whole, you know, hunger-related deaths, whether related to civil conflict, you know, there's thousands of hunger-related deaths relative to each actual death from uh, direct war injury or, or, or conflict, um, the, the risk is so much higher. And, and I think it's become kind of a mundane issue that we're used to having a billion or a billion and a half people living day in and day out in this situation. And they don't really affect our lives in a way that's so critical. I mean, if you could link hunger to terrorism, maybe there would be an interest. And I think that it's really a stretch to do that in a way. I mean, I think that Scott Sagan made the, made the comment there's more discontent and more recruitment into terrorist organizations and so forth. But the fact is that um, just taken alone, the risks of people dying and, and uh, from hunger and disease related to hunger is far higher than anything that we see out there and it has been for several decades. 
So how to get more attention on it, um, you know, is there a way to relate this directly to our own lives? That's obviously the way to, that most people get attention on it. But I think um, the starkness of these nonlinearities that both Ken and Scott are showing right now is, is, is going to galvanize some attention. And I think, you know, as I said, the Gates Foundation attention to this has been really valuable because I think they're showing that this is worth putting a huge amount of money into um, at this point. So I'd welcome other comments on this. You know, Wally, I don't know if you want to comment on it as well. Okay. <laughs> Is there any, can you project at all whether this decreases the pressure on urbanization because mm -hmm. I don't know what the labor intensity of, of this crop is? Are, are more people going to stay on the farm and therefore not be in the cities and are susceptible to becoming terrorists? So, so, yeah. so if you, yeah, the bottom line is if you raise the value of agriculture, what does that do to migration? Yeah, I, I mean... Uh, you know, as, as economists, uh, we all know everything affects everything else, and so yes. But I think I think when you sit back and think in the grand scheme of things, um, that um, uh, that's not where the the main effect is going to be. It's it's the same thing as thinking about poverty policy and hunger in general. The answer lies partly in agriculture and in agriculture, pro agriculture policies, investment and. And, and these things, but it, there's a, an entire no, a whole complement of things that need to be done um, that require resources and policy changes and uh, and inputs and technology and and so that it's this isn't the I don't think that's the I think there's an impact I don't think that's the main, that's where we're not looking at that's not the the main story here but. Um, uh, uh, the, the urbanization story is part of the main story of poverty, and thinking and understanding that and how you make it better is is critical to um, solving the problems that um, that we're interested in. Other questions? Yeah, way in the back one. If I can add a muscle one that we've been addressing. Um, if you have any comments or support in terms of your studies and thinking about it or anybody you know talking about it, is much of the issues regarding agriculture, at least with so much a production and it's a distribution issue. And the distribution issues as the world becomes increasingly globalized are in one sense significantly eased so that in fact you can move good services around. You can send Iowa corn to, or pardon me, Nebraska corn <laughs> to scale. Um, on the other hand, where it does tie into security issues is the whole global distribution network. And when you start having choke points at port facilities and others that will be significantly affected by terrorists can be affected, not only in terms of real time. Um, we haven't been able to find too many of the people in the agricultural world talking about that nexus and that overlook. Do you know anybody talking about it? Do you have any thoughts on it? Can we talk later oh, about those issues? Well, we were talking, Hugo and I, with a young man today that's talking this afternoon, Steve Flynn, that's going to talk about infrastructure. Yeah, and, and bottlenecks. But the first, I'd just like to address your overall assumption, and that is that in today's world, yeah, distribution is the challenge and we have enough food. But in the world we're presenting here, if ethanol's taking a large chunk of it, um, current rates of gain and yield, so if you project out the 2% that, that Scott shows, and if I do the same for U.S. corn, it doesn't do it. It doesn't do it at all. It only does it if you open up broad expanses of, of uh, fragile land in places like Brazil, Equatorial Africa. 
So I think, again, I think, we're, you know, we, we've said it, we're in a different world now. We've gone through Alice's wonder, Alice's looking glass and everything's different. So I, I think we've got to, to challenge the assumption that it's just a, that it will be just a distribution problem, but it's actually going to be a competition for use of food for very, use of food crops for a number of, of uses and of which into the foreseeable future it looks like energy is the highest value. So I, I think uh, we should let you guys have some lunch here. I just want to um, add another nonlinearity to the, to the discussion over lunch, and that is we do a lot of our projections on agriculture, assuming we know what's going to happen with climate and how climate's really going to affect agriculture and agricultural productivity. That's another thing on top of all of this, and as we clear the forests, we're changing the climates even more. So. Um, thank you very much for your great questions and your attention, and we look forward to more discussions. Thank, thank you. you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.